The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, going into our umpteenth year. I don't even want to do the math on what year this is, but because it ends in a four and the year we started ended in a six. Got to bring in that first show. <laughs> I'm going to say... Going in, yes, and it stays that way. <laughs> I'm going to say we're going into our 28th year here of uh, being around just to make sure you get the inspiration and information you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. So at 30 years, I like get a watch and a pension, right? Well, that's that... a used watch. <laughs> <laughs> <from> Walmart. <laughs> yeah. Not so much retirement parties and pensions at a nonprofit radio station. Yes, I guess. Yeah, no, really, we'll get you the watch next year. Just one more year, and you'll get the watch. Um, so it's the first week of the year, and this is the week where um, lots of folks have made New Year's resolutions that go something like, "No, seriously, this is the year." This is the year that I'm going to start investing in real estate or do my first deal or grow my existing business to be what I think it should be. And um, that means that you need to get yourself connected to some education, some people, some knowledge, some skills, all that sort of thing. Don't Don't try to go it alone. That's my... Very best advice to you is when you can't figure out something, find somebody who already knows it. Don't don't let it be the thing that keeps you from making any forward action because you can't figure it out. You can't find it on YouTube, etc. Um, it happens to also be question and answer week since that's what we do in the first week of each month. So you are welcome, invited, encouraged. Do call or email in any questions you have about next steps, um, how to how to do something, some deal you're already working on. The phone number is 877-772-9658. Again, 877-772-9658. You can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor E-N-A at gmail.com. The way to kind of make sure that you get your 
question answered is to call it in and, and, and relatively quickly. You know, people sometimes call in like three minutes before the hour and we're already off the air because there's stuff that happens here that isn't just the show. Uh, so again, that number is 877-772-9658. If you're looking for those connections, those people connections, you might want to consider uh, taking a look at Cincinnati Rhea. Yeah, I know you're going, I don't live in Cincinnati. What has that got to do with me? It's a nonprofit organization that meets literally every night, every weeknight of the week about something. There's some topic going on every single weeknight, a lot of which is, um, you know, specialty stuff like focus groups that are that only talk about wholesaling or only talk about retailing or only talk about creative finance or uh, women's issues or new investors issues or notes or there's there's a there's a ton of those focus groups plus there are of course the national chapter meetings on the third thursday of every month and also the exchange meetings those are or haves and wants meetings um, every single solitary friday all of those are online <laughs> so it doesn't matter where you are from since area has about 300 members right now who as far as I know, have never been to the city of Cincinnati. They live elsewhere. They invest elsewhere, uh, but they value the education and connections that Cincinnati Rhea brings. Uh, CincinnatiRhea.com is the website to check out those benefits. And also, if you are in the Cincinnati area, where, of course, Cincinnati Rhea was founded, uh, there is a meeting tomorrow night in person. It's a good one. The topic for the first meeting is... The proposed Ohio anti-wholesaling law and the Kentucky wholesaling law that actually passed last year and nobody noticed it. Uh, so if you're a wholesaler, you're anywhere near Cincinnati, you're probably going to want to make sure you get to that meeting. Uh, and then the main meeting is how to set up and be a good member of and get benefit from two things that will really add rocket fuel to your real estate business now and forever. And that is accountability groups and mastermind groups. It's a, it's a talk about seriously, how do you put these things together? How do you make them work for you in terms of accountability and problem solving? How do you, how do you make, pick the right group? All of that sort of thing. And that is with Tim Schofield, who of course was a guest here uh, just a few weeks ago and has a lot of experience uh, coaching and connecting people. You can get a pass to that in-person meeting by going to CincinnatiRia.com. That's C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-R-E-I-A dot com. So let us go to some of the questions that came in uh, prior to the show, because we do actually have an email that goes out for listeners the day before each show telling them what the topic is in case they have questions that they want to go ahead and get out. Um, question from, forgive me if I slaughter your name, really forgive me because I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. I, I don't. I can't tell you how many variations of Vina I have heard in my life. I'm going to say it's Demontre or Demontre. Uh, uh, actually, has a couple of questions here. Number one, 
when it comes to lease optioning a property or to buying it subject to the existing loan, how do I directly pay the seller's bank if they have a loan? Well, the answer is, Demontre, you might be overthinking this a little. You directly pay the bank by sending the bank a check along with the payment coupon, if that's how the seller has been paying. Now you're thinking, well, but they're going to see the checks coming from me and not the seller. No, they don't care. Like nobody really looks at that. They just process the pay. They run the they run the check through this little thing that makes it that goes zzz, and it it. I'm I'm trying to make motions. I'm on the radio and I'm trying to make motions to show you how it goes zzz, and it reads the check number. It reads the amount on the check. It they associate it with the payment coupon and. And I assume they shred the check. I don't, I don't know what happens with the check after that. If the seller has been paying via uh, an online portal, which is becoming more and more common, you are going to need to get access to that online portal, and you can just pay it that way. Uh, it's really not a big deal. You just pr- pretend you're the seller and pay the bank however the seller's been paying the bank. Number two, if I take the house subject to... How do I receive the equity after I sell the property if the loan was in the seller's name? Um, I know what you're thinking here, Demontre, because I have seen other people uh, kind of conflate two things. Um, what you are mixing up a little bit here is the idea of ownership versus the idea of being a debtor or being a, yeah, being a debtor. When you buy a house subject to the existing loan, you get the deed at the beginning of that deal. Like you become the owner at the beginning of that deal. And on that day, on the day of the closing, you already control all the equity. If there is any, sometimes, you know, we buy subject to at a hundred percent of value because the financing terms are so good. So there is no equity, but there will be equity, right? You'll pay the loan down, value the property will go up. There will be equity and you already control that equity. The way you get it out is the same way you would get it out of a house that you did not take over a loan on, which is if you sell it, a chunk of the proceeds from the sale will go to pay off the old owner's loan, and the rest of it is yours. I mean, some of it might be the real estate agents, some of it might be the tax people's, but the rest of it is yours. Um, If you wait all the way until the property is paid off, then 100% of the sale price less the sales costs is all yours. Now, none, none of it is due to the borrower because they sold the house ages ago. And the only part of it's due to the bank is whatever might still be remaining on the loan. Now, when I hear people, and again, this is very, very common, when I hear people conflate um, ownership versus a lien against the property, what they're often really asking is when we get to that point where I want to sell the house or where the loan is paid off, how do I get the loan released since it's not my loan? Banks release loans when they are paid off. Now, there there can be issues at that point with even calling the bank and getting a payoff because you're not their borrower, which is why at the beginning of all of this, you need to get some kind of a power of attorney or some kind of permission from the seller to uh, for the bank to talk to you about things like what is the current payoff 
on the property. Um, number three, have you ever had an attorney try to talk your seller out of a deal? Sure. Happens quite a bit, in fact. If so, how did you handle that situation? And uh, do you have any recommendations on what attorney to use when buying the property on terms? So that I can't actually answer the second part of that because I don't know where you're from. I couldn't I couldn't say it's got to be it's somebody who, you know, understands the laws in the state where the property is. Um, and even if that were true, I couldn't, quote, recommend an attorney because this is public radio and all. But uh, the first part of the question, you know, how do you handle that situation if an attorney, if a, if a seller says, I like I like what you're saying here, I kind of I like the idea of you making my payments going forward, but I need to run this past my attorney. I I say, okay, is your attorney like a real estate expert kind of attorney? And almost 100% of the time they say no. They say it's it's the guy who did my divorce or it's my brother-in-law who does corporate law or it's my... It's not a, it's not an attorney that's actually familiar with real estate. And so then I just try to prepare them and I say, look, attorneys who don't deal with real estate on a day to day basis will often say no to things like this, not because it's not the best thing for you or not because it's not legal or whatever, but because they really just don't understand it. And they're not going to go sit down and do the research and say, Oh, okay. Apparently this is a really common thing and it happens all the time. And here are, uh, the risks to you, my client, and here are the benefits to you, my client. And so I say, look, if they, if your attorney has any questions, any objections, anything like that, let's let him talk to my attorney because if he talks to me, he's not going to believe me because I didn't get a legal degree. Um, if he talks to you, well, he's not going to believe you because you came to him for advice. So let's let's let him talk to a different attorney because they, they can talk the same language and most of the time, once my attorney has talked to that attorney and and gone through, yes, this is a risk, but here's how we take care of it, uh, the attorney is not against any kind of creative deal that we might do, but they really, really have to have it explained to them by another legal professional. And number four, do you use land trusts? The answer is yes. <laughs> That was a that was an easy, quick question. Thank you. Uh, we need to take a quick break. It's question and answer week on real life real estate investing. You can ask questions either by calling us here in the studio, if, assuming you're listening to this live and not later on on the podcast. Uh, 877-772-9658. Again, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. <clears throat> and apparently my voice shows that moment after the microphone came back on to get all fishy like that. Uh, it's question and answer week, which means uh, you can call with call or email with anything you want to talk about in the real estate investing world, including... You know, what are your goals for 2024? What's your thoughts about the real estate market in 2024? 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. By the way, if you, well, whether or not you have like set your real estate goals for 2024, you might want to go to cincinnatiria.com and check out the January 13th uh, half day workshop on 
investing intentionally by putting vision first. I think this is going to be an important, uh, that, that, that event is going to be an important moment for a lot of real estate investors who are very used to just setting like house goals or financial, you know, I want to create $20,000 more in cash flow. I want to buy five more houses. I want to flip nine deals a quarter, that sort of thing, because um, that kind of goal needs to be resting in a larger uh, picture. And that picture is your vision for your life and how you are spending it. And I went to one of these workshops, not not this exact one, but one of these workshops about 15 years ago. And I will admit, I kind of went involuntarily. I had to, um, it was a, it was another Cincinnati RIA event. And I was just the person responsible for making sure the speaker had water and that the lunch came on time and all of those sorts of things. But, you know, as long as I was there, I thought I'll listen to it. And um, it was it was a life changing day for me. It was like. I've been doing this all wrong. I've been siloing my business away from my personal life and vision. And I literally kind of changed everything about how I was doing things. I'll give you one. If anybody cares about Venus experience. I will give you one really kind of stunning example of what that day did. I had had a multi-year-long goal at that point to build my wholesaling business to the point where I was doing um, 20 deals a month, so 120 a year, and I'd put a lot of effort into uh, what kind of what kind of people are we going to need for that? What's the monthly budget going to be like? How, many, how much mailing do we have to do? And I was building up to that point. I had, in fact, hired some people and worked on the marketing and was increasing the amount of marketing. And I, I went to that vision workshop and the the focus was so much on, okay, yeah, but what kind of life do you want to live? That when I walked out, I was like, because, you know, there was actual here's what you would put into your vision statement stuff just like there will be on the 13th and I walked out going I'm going to have to give up that was in my brain I was giving up I was walking away from that goal of 120 deals a year because it doesn't mesh with the way I want to live my life I don't want to live my life working 80 hours a week and responsible for a potentially $50,000 a month monthly budget and uh, having to supervise and coordinate a lot of people. That's, that's really not the way my brain likes to work. It likes to work in a more creative way. And it took me a little while. It took me a few weeks or maybe even a few months to stop saying, well, but how can I make them fit together? How can I, how can I have three, six week vacations every year and also have this giant wholesaling company? And the answer was, okay, 20 deals a month is actually 240 deals a year. I just, I was just reviewing that in my own head and went, that math's wrong. I went, there, there isn't a way. And also, why do I need to do 240 wholesale deals? Like what, what, what brought that number to my brain? Like what, what, what made me think that that was some good number to have? Well, part of it is, oh, look at how much money I'll make. And part of it is that would make me the, at that time, the highest performing wholesaler in the Cincinnati area. And then I'll be impressive and people will like me. 
And I realized that those were both really bad reasons to do something. Didn't need the kind of money that was going to generate and also to do something so that other people are impressed was not the kind of person I wanted to be or life that I wanted to live. So it literally like I totally changed my goals for my acquisition business as a result of that workshop. And I'm really glad I did. If I'd have built that business, I might have a bunch of money and I might also be super miserable. So even if you don't go to the workshop, please work on your personal vision and make sure that what you're planning to do in real estate aligns with it. If you do want to check out the workshop, uh, CincinnatiRe.com and just look at the calendar for January the 13th. Oh, the guy who's teaching it was in that class with me, by the way, in that same class 15 years ago. Uh, okay, so getting some more questions in now. This one is from, oops, that's not a question for the show. This question is from Jonathan. And it is about, ah, the whole thing is about uh, being a provider of owner financing now that I look at it. So, uh Jonathan, you can call and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it sure looks to me like you're, the strategy that you're asking about is I'm going to maybe buy a property and then I'm going to sell it, but I'm going to carry back the financing and also I'm going to sell it to a homeowner from what I can see from these questions. So question number one is about balloons in such mortgages and also that would include land contracts and contracts for deed, of course. Aside from a rural location, do you see a problem with balloons? I'm not sure what it being, I'm not sure what a property being in a rural location would have to do with whether balloons in the mortgage were a problem or not. Um, Can I have none with a consumer or is there leeway? There is not a bunch of leeway on that. Jonathan, you just can't do it. If you were a homeowner selling your own house, I might have a different answer for you. But if you're talking about I'm selling to someone who's going to live in the property and also I'm going to I'm going to truly sell it like I'm either going to give them a deed or a contract for deed, then no, you cannot put you cannot say you have to pay the whole thing off in five years. You make five, you make you know five years worth of regular monthly payments and then you have to pay the whole thing off in five years. However, If your goal is, I want to be like cashed out of this property in five years, you can create that scenario by simply selling the note you created in five years, right? You want to be cashed out on the note, sell the note in five years, and you really want to go back, uh, I think we uh, two weeks maybe, go to realliferealestate.com. And listen to the show I did with Marco Berrio. Because that was exactly what he was talking about was if you are an investor selling a property and carrying back financing, there's certain things you need to do in terms of qualifying the borrower and setting up the note itself so that when you do go to sell it in five years, you can get max money for it, like maybe even sell it at what's called at par, in other words, sell the note for what is still owed on it. The other thing that could happen and often does happen, if especially in an, in an environment where interest rates are likely to drop, is that it doesn't matter whether or not you have a balloon in the, in the, the loan or the land contract. The 
buyer's going to go refinance it at some point and just pay you off. Or the buyer is going to sell the property because remember, it's their property. They're going to sell it and they're going to pay you off. So when when Dodd-Frank, which is what you're referring to here, the Dodd-Frank law came into place back in the day. Uh, that was one of the things that really bothered investors. They were used to being able to sell a property on a land contract for five years and give the folks a chance to improve their credit and maybe improve the house and then go get their own financing. And Dodd-Frank pulled the rug out from under that and everyone was like, well, I'm not ever going to sell another property on owner financing in my whole life. Except that as cooler heads prevailed and people realized that there were other ways to accomplish, I'm going to be cashed out of this property in five years, it became not such a big deal. Uh, number two, high rates. Banks offer a 3-2-1 buy-down. Okay, so let me just explain that to listeners. Um, if you are an investor and you are getting a loan, uh, and what, usually what's called a DSCR loan, not a conventional loan, the terms of that loan... Uh, usually say something like, um, well, there's really two things. One thing is a, uh, a, um, there's a prepayment penalty. If you, if you pay off the loan within a year, you are going to pay a certain penalty. And if you pay it off within two years, a certain lower penalty. And one year there's a certain other lower penalty and then it goes away. After three years, you can pay off the loan. I've seen five years too, but, uh, you can pay off the loan and not have any issue. If you're asking, can you do that with a homeowner? The answer is going to be no <laughs> to that. Uh, three, two, one buy down example at the start of a, at the start of the loan, it's at 10%. Then in five years, it drops to 8%. Then in five years, it drops to 7%, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, can you do that? Well, you, I mean, you can have adjustable rate loans. Under Dodd-Frank, you can have adjustable rate loans that you're giving to homeowners. However, they have to be attached to some index. You, you, the, the, the homeowner needs to be able to know what their loan amount is going to be at any given time. So usually you attach it to the 30-year treasury note and say it's going to be that plus two points or something like that. You're kind of saying the opposite you're trying to say you're going to start at a higher rate and then drop down over time. My question is, why would you want to do that? I, I think maybe you're thinking, well, you know, that way, if they perform well, then they get rewarded by getting a lower rate the next year. And then if they perform well, they get and if they don't perform well, then maybe the stuff doesn't happen. Um, I would not do that with a consumer and there's there's two reasons for that. Number one, it's I think it would be a little questionable <laughs> under lending rules because it's not attached to anything except did I or did I not think that you made your payments all on time? And the second reason is you're reducing the value of your loan. You're, if you if you decide to sell the loan and you reduce the interest rate over time, you're also reducing the value over time. Um. Third reason I wouldn't do it is because you realize that the borrower is going to have to qualify for the highest payment under those rates, right? You're going to get people applying who can afford it at 7% but can't afford it at the first year of 10% 
interest rates. Question number three, is there a problem with somebody who's got a debt-to-income ratio over 43%? Can I not offer to someone at 50% if I take the correct precautions? Again, you you probably need to go actually read the part of Dodd-Frank that applies to this kind of financing. It's the, The instructions are not that clear. And the instructions don't say, the instructions say you have to qualify the borrower. It doesn't say a borrower is then qualified if the following things are true. But somebody paying 50% of their income for a property is likely to fail. And isn't your goal that they get to buy the property and you get to get payments every month? So given that we don't have instructions, we don't have, we don't have something that says, here's how, here's what qualifies a borrower, just that you have to check on all the things and quote, make sure they're qualified. Um, the safest thing to do, in my opinion, is look at what, uh, FHA's requirements are. And they have, they actually have two sets. They have one about net income and one about gross income and 50% would not meet that scenario and also it's likely to cause the people to not be able to make the payments which is not what you want or what they want am i restricted to offering a qm loan so it's a qualifying mortgage it's something that banks have to do unless they take extra steps um no you don't but you have to make a smart loan it has to be smart for you it has to be smart for them you know non non non-predatory in the sense that you're not putting somebody in who has a great big giant down payment and you know they're not going to be able to make the payments. Don't do that. You want a deal where everybody ends up happy, assuming everybody does what they're supposed to do. So thank you for your question, Jonathan. We need to take a break. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. 877-772-9658 is the number to call. You can also uh, send us an email. The address is askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. First Wednesday of the month, first month of the year, question and answer week. Uh, we have maybe another 15 minutes to answer questions here. So if you've got one burning in your soul, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. And don't get intimidated by the fact that the first two questions I got were like super advanced. I mean, there there were people who clearly have done a lot of studying on creative finance type things. You don't have to worry about Oh, he's just going to be bored with my question because what I want to know is how do I get started? Uh, while we are waiting for some more questions to come in at 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com, uh, here's a tip for you that's useful and not going to cost you anything. Um, back in the early December, uh, I started a new Facebook group that is only for the purpose of investors helping other investors. We don't even let people post properties for sale, post courses, seminars, private money, anything like that. And it has grown to 1,200 members in just about five weeks um, because lots of folks who are pretty experienced have uh, joined up with that group and 
they're they're discussing some very interesting things and helping other people with deals and so on. It's called Summit Real Estate Entrepreneurs. If you want the direct link so that you don't have to sort your way through a bunch of things with the word summit in it, it's facebook.com slash groups slash REI summit. Facebook.com slash groups slash REI summit. It has also already grown. Within the first two weeks, people were saying, you know what, we should have like a a meeting where we can help each other. And it's already grown to the point where there is, in fact, a monthly help night scheduled that is on, uh, I want to say, the fourth Wednesday of each month. So um, there's no charge for that meeting. There's no charge to be in the group. Nobody's selling you anything. It's it's a fun group to belong to. Facebook.com slash group slash REI Summit. Ah, question here from Stephen who, yay, (laughs) didn't get intimidated by the very complex first couple of questions. What advice would you give to someone who is interested in starting in real estate in the current market? Oh, and then he made me a list. Number one, find a RIA. Number two, educate yourself in real estate areas that interest you. Number three, learn how to evaluate deals. Number four, build a team. Number five, find a mentor. And then dot, 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 which is, I assume, where I'm supposed to fill in some blank there. So, Stephen, this is not a bad list, but there is some nuance to this that, I mean, I think this is this is the list that you would generally get if you just asked somebody, like, what are the steps to getting started? Um, nuance number one. Yes, find a real estate investors association, preferably one that is really created for the members. I I have been to real estate associations where it was pretty clearly actually about building the business of whoever owned or ran the real estate association. And as a result, it was not, the, the meetings weren't very educational or didn't, didn't allow for a lot of networking and meeting people and stuff like that. It was all about, you know, sign up for my mentoring program or something like that. So, you know, go in with an eye to, um, am I feeling like people, the, the people are here to actually help the members succeed and it, you know, there might be stuff for sale. It's part of the way Rhea's meet their budget and it's part of the way they meet the educational requirements of their members. Because like if you said, I want to get started in Airbnb, sure, we can do a 90 minute meeting on Airbnbs, but that's not going to get you started in Airbnbs. You probably need to take like a weekend long course. So we might go out and find somebody who teaches a really good weekend long course and have them come to the meeting and educate about it for 90 minutes and then say, by the way, if you really want to do this, come to my course. It's That's not the fact that somebody might be selling something at some of the meetings is not a criteria that you should worry about. It's, am I, do I feel like I'm being educated and supported here? Uh, number two, educate yourself in real estate areas that interest you. Um, I would say the first education is really in what are the options? Because there are so many ways to make money in real estate that if you go and spend a bunch of time educating yourself in every area that interests you, you're going to spend a lot of time and money being a student. 
you have to start with really what does Stephen, what is Stephen trying to get out of this in the short term? What does Stephen need to get out of this in the short term? And if Stephen were to say, well, my biggest concern is that I need to start building up wealth and income for retirement, I would say, okay, Stephen, here's two, here's two areas you don't need to study, even if they interest you. Wholesaling and retailing. You don't need to study those because those are not going to create long-term retirement income. Yeah, but I need them. I need that cash so that I can invest in rentals, notes, short-term rentals, group housing, whatever I think my type of investment is going to be. Apartments. Um, no, you actually don't need cash to do that. You, I mean, you do need cash, but it doesn't have to be yours. It can be other people's money. So, there's not this, there's not this path that people think, seem to think there is where first I wholesale, then I retail, then I buy a single family rental, then I buy apartments, then I buy, that, that, that's not, that's not some prescribed path. So educate yourself in the areas that seem to, the strategies that seem to best meet your goals. And of course that starts with what is, what does Stephen really need? Uh, learn how to evaluate deals. Absolutely. In fact, I would maybe, yeah, I guess I would put that number three because that is one of the six or seven key skills that you just have to develop if you're going to do this. And it, it's probably the most important of those six or seven skills. Number four and five, build a team and find a mentor. That's where it gets a little nuanced. Yeah, you want to be, let's just let's just pile both of these things under the, category of people be developing relationships with people because by team i assume you mean a cpa an attorney a real estate agent you know folks who provide services to you those are people right and you're gonna you're gonna find those at a good real estate association uh, find a mentor. Um, that's just another form of people. And I, I, I less and less like that word the more I hear people use it in a way that I don't see it. Um, for most people, a mentor is somebody who's, who's basically going to take me under their wing and they're going to like share with me how they've become successful and what to do in my deals and so on. And that is a big responsibility to heap on a individual person, which is why mentors who have a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of experience charge a lot, a lot, a lot of money to truly mentor you to get up, to get up into your life and have your, you know, understand you what your goals are and help you with individual deals and correct you when you're doing stuff that isn't going to be effective for what your goals are and so on. Um, 10,000 a year, 20,000 a year, 30,000 a year is a pretty common price for that kind of mentor. And somebody who's a more casual, you know, I met them at my real estate association. We really got along. So now I want him to mentor me. That's all, that's all fine and well, except that there has to be some compensation for the mentor outside of just, oh, I have this, I feel, I feel really good because I'm mentoring this new investor because there's so many new investors who want to be mentored. So maybe that relationship with the person in your local association is more of like a financial friend type relationship where the way they're getting compensated is you're going out and finding deals and they are sharing in them in return for helping you do them and so on. I think maybe what you want to think about, though, is 
mentors. Because it's unlikely that you're going to find a single person who's willing to spend a hundred hours with you over the next 12 months and who is very experienced in all of the different things that you maybe end up deciding you want to do. So maybe, maybe don't make it quite so formal in your head and say, I just need, I just need a group of allies. I need lots of people that I, I know I've seen, I've talked to, I know have the attitude that, Hey, if you help me, I'll help you. And think of it as, okay, well, this is the guy I go to when I've got a creative finance question. This is the gal I go to when I've got a rehab question. This is the, I I know these people because I built relationships with them and they help me out. And then I try to help them out in any way that I can, which sometimes includes including them in deals. As to the dot, 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 (laughs) I would say the dot, dot, dot is, is take action. You know, it's, you can't, you're doing these five things is not going to make you a dime. (laughs) It's not going to do you one single deal. At, At some point you have to, take action and yeah, having, having a group of people around you that you feel like they will, they will help me, especially if I cut them into deals that I'm doing in return for that education, you can feel okay about going out and taking some action because you've got that support system, right? If you, if you need somebody to help you evaluate the deal, you know, you've got that. If you need somebody to help you understand what the paperwork is for that deal, you know that you can reach out to somebody and get that. If you know that if you um, buy a rental and you've never managed it before, you can maybe split it with a partner who has managed lots of rentals and that's how you can learn to uh, do rentals. So there's always this balance. I'm, I'm, I'm very big into you knowing particularly how to evaluate properties, but also like how a strategy works and, um, uh, potential problems with that strategy, legalities around that strategy, ethics around that strategy. But on the flip side, I've seen people spend two, three, four years at Cincinnati Rea just learning and learning and learning and learning and learning. And like they, they really, they can actually really help people by passing on all the stuff they've learned from all the courses they've taken, but they've never made an offer. And if we are having a conversation and I say, so what's up with that? They say, well, I've just got two more courses I want to take and then I'll be ready to pull the trigger. Okay. No, you don't need that much education to pull the trigger. You need, you need some education and you need to go out and take action. Cause you know, overall, when you're 10 years from now, when you're looking back and saying, what percentage of what I now know did I learn from books and courses and workshops and that sort of thing versus what percentage did I learn from just going out and doing things and, feeling like I messed them up. <laughs> um, not in some, not in some bad fatal way because I had, I had people around me, but I, I like looking back on it. I know I could have done a better job with it than I did. Or I, I, you know, I lost the deal from, for some stupid reason that I now know how to solve. So how much, what percentage did I get from books and what percentage did I get from experience, some of it good, some of it bad, the answer is going to be (laughs) 50-50. It's going to be, it's not that you got to some point with the books and workshops and all that sort of thing that 
you went, okay, I now know everything I need to know. I'm not afraid. I'm never going to make a mistake, etc. So I'd say action has to be on that list for sure. So thank you uh, for your question. And now I am looking at a question that is super... There's a super lot of numbers in it, and the numbers are numbers are kind of hard on the radio. Like I wish I had a whiteboard and a camera at this point, but I will do my best with this numbers heavy question. This is from Renee. She says, "In the scenario that I'm about to outline below, how can Jake be completely free from this house and?" as well as his ex-wife, Nancy. How can Nancy keep living in the house, either as a renter or an owner? Here's the details. Jake and Nancy got divorced last year. Nancy currently lives in the house. Jake has remarried and purchased another house. The divorce settlement requires Nancy to pay Jake $150,000 by June for her part of the house they own together. So in other words, there was the divorce decree said, hey, Nancy, you get the house, but Jake gets his equity back. And you've got until June of 2024 to give him 150000 in equity. Nancy wants to keep living in the house, but can't afford to buy it from Jake because she's a 1099 earner without much income. Jake says no to the idea of seller financing to Nancy. He wants to sell the house to an outside party and be finished with Nancy. And then he gives me some details here. Renee gives me some details here about the mortgage balance, the after repaired value, um, only Jake's name is on the mortgage. Both of their names are on the deed. Uh, oh, it's a, it's an Airbnb. Property currently is a popular listing on Airbnb. I thought Nancy lived in it. So does Nancy have income from the Airbnb? Uh, potential rent, potential rent as a, as a long-term rental. So here's the thing, Renee. The bottom line is Nancy cannot afford this house. She cannot afford it even if Jake were to own or finance it to her because she doesn't have enough income, it sounds like. So any scenario wherein, I, th I think what you're thinking is, I could give Jake the $150,000. I could buy all or half of the house, and then Nancy could continue to live there and make the mortgage payments, but it doesn't sound like that is correct it doesn't sound like nancy can afford them now if if the reason you mentioned that it was a popular listing on airbnb is because nancy does in fact have extra income from the airbnb what you would do is you would qualify nancy as if she were renting it from you you'd get her pay stubs you'd probably look at her tax returns all the, all the stuff that you would do to see if she could afford to live in the property as a rental, and then you look at what is the monthly payment and what is the what is her income, and you would make a decision about whether or not Nancy can actually afford to stay in the house. I, I can see that that is your you you want to make money on this, but you also want Nancy to get what she wants. I don't think Nancy can get what she wants here. The other thing, the other complication here is that it can't be a subject to because Jake won't agree to that because he wants the mortgage out of his name and he wants his cash. So the only scenario I can see here is qualify Nancy 
if she qualifies and you can get a new loan for the current loan balance plus $150,000 and then possibly do something like sell it to Nancy with owner financing, lease option it to Nancy, rent it to Nancy. That is the scenario under which I see that you could get what you want and she gets what she wants. But sometimes, especially in divorce situations, these things get unfortunate (laughs) because what the two ex-spouses want are too different from one another. But thank you for your question, Renee. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.